Welcome back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. And I'm not going to be doing my usual greeting. Like I usually always say, I'm so excited to be back with you guys. But this week, I'm super thankful, right, to be back with you guys, humbled as well. And so in an effort to show you guys our appreciation, as we have stated before, we will be dropping two additional episodes um, in an effort to just show our appreciation for you guys supporting us over a year now so we've officially hit a year and now we're going into another one so that is how we are choosing to thank you guys I kind of thought about it y'all and I was like okay I'm gonna get him episode Tuesday but I also know you're gonna get an episode Thursday so I was thinking Instead of like overload and immediately dropping that last episode on Friday, I'm going to wait till Saturday. We're going to switch it up, okay? We need some breaks in between to digest the cases that we've discussed. That's just how I feel personally, right? So, I am so happy that you guys enjoyed our last episode about Shanquilla Robinson. There's been so many updates about that case, But the only reason why I'm not giving some of those updates right now is because a lot of the things that I've been seeing has been rumors and had and those rumors have been dispelled. So that's number one. Number two, um, I just want to make sure that I, you know, fact check a lot of the things that I do hear and go and read some articles. I I just haven't had time to do that yet, y'all. Like, y'all know I'm a braider. Baby, I've been braiding, okay? It is holidays. Busy season is in full effect for Steph, okay? So I promise that on Thursday's episode, we will have updates about Shanquilla's Robinson's case. What we do know is that last Friday, she was buried. And I also know for a fact that Kyrie Irving actually contributed to her GoFundMe and he ended up like like they had so much before but it wasn't all that they needed and so he donated $65,000 to complete the GoFund goal and contribute to making sure that everything that the family wanted to do for her funeral was accomplished. So I think that's amazing. Far too often do we not hear about um, athletes doing things like this. We only hear about bad stuff. So I wanted to give y'all some good stuff. Can I give y'all some good stuff? So they were able to lay her to rest. I promise there will be an update about her on Thursday's episode. But let's get into our crime case for the day. crime case today is about the beautiful Shannon Manny and I'll make sure I typically always do this anyway with our episodes um but I will ensure that I post pictures of Shannon because she is absolutely gorgeous if your beauty standard is Kim Kardashian she surpasses that with ease okay I just you know we have to We have to celebrate beauty when we see it, okay? So I've entitled this case, All Living Things Have the Right to Live. Shannon was originally from Fiji, but her parents and younger brother decided to move to the States when she was three years old. They decided on Waukesha, Milwaukee to live. And that city is known for its low crime rate. It has a great community to raise children in. And it's a small town. It has that small town feel. This this city of Waukesha, which I never heard of before. May I, can I mention that? Never knew about this city. But I don't know much about Wisconsin. So, you know, it goes hand in hand. It goes hand in hand. But the city that she was raised in reminded me a lot of the city that I currently live in and the city where I'm from. So I'm 
Y'all know I love talking about how I'm, I'm from the Lone Star State, baby. Well, I am from Dallas, but I live just, I was raised just south of Dallas, still Dallas County. Do not come for me, okay? Unless I send you. Just south of Dallas in a suburb called DeSoto. And I love DeSoto. We represent DeSoto too. And that had a very small town feel. The crime rate was low when I grew up there. It was just a really good suburb to raise your children in. And there were, you know, we had our own businesses. And although you didn't necessarily know everybody in your community, it was still the sense of it was safe and the schools were good and it was a good, you know, city, town to raise your kids in. Same is true for Frisco, Texas, which is where I currently reside. And Frisco, in terms of Dallas, is north of Dallas, far north of Dallas. And, you know, I love Frisco because it does have those same qualities that Wakisha has and where I was raised in DeSoto. So I just wanted to throw that in there. I think a lot of times when you think of... um. When I think of small town feel, I often think of the South, but obviously it's not limited to the South. You can still get that in other places in the United States. On April 13, 2018, Shannon's parents arrive at Wakisha Police Department and they tell the police that they need to file a missing persons report. Investigators naturally want to know more because Shannon is 21 years old. So we know this routine, right? Simply because you're 21, you have the freedom to go out on your own and disappear and not come back until you want, right? And they need to know more before they go ahead and file the missing persons report. Her parents have no problem going over the day with them. They insist that their daughter, first of all, is extremely responsible and reliable. So the day started off completely normal. Her mother mentioned that she woke up that morning, went to work, took her son to school, and the father also went to work as well. Now, she usually hears from um, Shannon throughout the day, but that day she didn't hear from her. That did not immediately draw attention or bring attention to her mother or, you know, cause alarm bells because it just was like, okay, well, maybe she's just busy today, you know, like no big deal. But Shannon was supposed to pick up her brother that day and she failed to pick him up. So naturally the school calls Shannon's mother and they mentioned this to her and she immediately calls um, Shannon's father and says, Hey, you need to get off of work. Something's not right. I, Shannon didn't pick up our son from school and we can't get in contact with her. I've been calling her. She's not picking up the phone. So you need to get off work and come meet us at the house. She of course goes and picks her son up and they both arrive back at home to find that Shannon's not there. None of her belongings like purse, wallet, none of those things are there. And also, obviously, her car is not in the driveway. In natural order, they start to call Shannon's friends and, you know, start to say, hey, have you heard from her today? Did she mention about anywhere that she was going to go today? Anything. And they say to her, no, like we haven't heard from her since yesterday, which was Thursday. They said they hadn't heard from her and they didn't hear from her at all on Friday, nor did they know anything about her whereabouts. And the last person they call before they end up at the police department is her boyfriend, Quentin Neal. Quentin Neal kind of like spilled the same story that her friends did. And he seemed genuinely concerned about Shannon and the and her disappearance. Like he was stumped, like, oh my goodness, and distraught. And so he was immediately in finding her mode as well. Shannon's parents go out and start to try to look for her car at, you know, places that she would be. They call her job. She didn't show up for her shift. None of these things are following the pattern of reliable and responsible 
Shannon. And so this is a blaring red flag for Shannon's parents. And they immediately, of course, go to the police. While investigators fully understood that Shannon's parents knew uh, their daughter very well, they also had to take into consideration that sometimes children don't always reveal certain details about their lives to their parents. So the police were kind of hesitant to go forward with filing the missing persons report. But ultimately, Shannon's parents revealed to the police that Shannon was 24 weeks pregnant and she had no reason to go missing willingly on her own, right? So that immediately expedited the process of filing the police report. And in addition to filing the police report, they also put an APB out, not just to the local police there in Lakeisha, but also other jurisdictions that didn't, you know, that were surrounding their city in an effort to locate her. Because as I've already stated, you know, she has to have prenatal care. There would be no reason why she would go missing willingly, right? So it's an emergency to find her, you know, because another, in addition to her life, another life is at stake as well. And so they start to move forward and a lot faster and take all these other precautions to make sure that they can kick this investigation off. So I wanted to stop here and just quickly talk about the the different perspectives as you are walking into a police station to file a missing, missing persons report. There are different protocols in every state and every, well, every state, but then there's also different protocols in your city, right? So often in these publicized cases, more often than not, when an adult goes missing, you you have to wait like an allotted amount of time before the police start their investigation, right? So it's usually, the time frame is usually 48. I've heard 72. Um, and I've heard just 24 hours. So it really just depends. But I want to make it clear that I hope that none of you find yourselves or have found yourselves on the victim end of going to the police station and trying to figure all this information out. But if you do find yourself on that end, it's always better to report and find out what the the statues are in your city um, regarding missing people. Because it's better to go ahead and go forward and report it and find out there's a holding period. And then after the holding period, go back and aggressively, you know, tell them to file the missing persons report. It's always better to do that than to wait because of information you've heard on a podcast of waiting 24 hours, of waiting 72, 48. And that's not at all your city's statues when it comes to missing people. You see what I'm saying? So you rather go ahead and just report it and even if they tell you to wait, you can just go back and report it so they can kick off the investigation. So with her parents telling the police that she was pregnant, I fully understand why that would expedite the searching process. And I'm happy that they were able to do that because they did that. They were able to save a lot of time in finding out what happened to Shannon. So as the police are sending out the APB, making sure they fully give everyone the information they need to start to look for Shannon, the police, can, well, the investigators, I should say at this point, the detectives are talking to Shannon's parents, trying to figure out like who she is, what is her routine schedule, what does that look like, who, who we may need to talk to to find out what ultimately happened to Shannon. As they're talking to her, uh, the investigators decide to call Quentin Neal, which is her boyfriend, of course, and they ask him to come down to the police station for an interview. He agrees, and when he does arrive, he is visibly upset, very concerned about Shannon and their unborn child. He gives his, um, I want to say condolences, but he expresses his feelings that he has the same sentiments as her parents. And he also, you know, he really wants to find 
Shannon as well. Okay. So the police asked him to walk through, right, um, Friday with him. And if he saw Shannon on Thursday, what did that look like, right? So he says, I did not see her at all Friday, but I did see her on Thursday because she came to my house after school, after she did her classes, and nothing seemed wrong with her. And he mentioned that he texted her on Friday and she never responded. So police asked if he knew of anything in Shannon's life um, or anyone that would harm her or something that went on that upset her in, in recent weeks. And he tells them that Shannon had a friend named Trevor at school and he recently just confessed his love for Shannon. He was obsessed with her, you know, kind of giving off stalker vibes. And she didn't reciprocate it. You know, she let him know that he was putting it on thick. And listen, I'm not interested in that. I have a baby on the way. I'm with my boyfriend. That's not what I want. We are strictly friends. And so the police are automatically intrigued because now they have a person of interest. So they find out later on in the investigation that they have located her car. And it was in a Milwaukee parking lot. They searched the car, but nothing is suspicious. Her cell phone's not there, purse, wallet, no signs of struggle in the car at all. And the police are kind of baffled. They're like, gosh, you know, they were hoping that either they would find her or they would find something within the car that suggested something happened to her, right? But they're just baffled. They don't know what caused her disappearance, but they go ahead and follow protocol and send the car off for testing so they can, you know, get any forensics, find out if any blood is there or uh, fingerprints that are not necessarily supposed to be there. So they do that. And then the police call Trevor in to interview him. Now, if you get online, you can find out his last name. They, it is public knowledge. But for the sake of our podcast, I do not think it is necessary. So I usually mention, you know, full names here. But I don't feel like in this particular case, it is necessary. Okay. So they interview Trevor. He comes in gladly and he says to the police and investigators, he's like, yeah, like I'm super concerned about where Shannon is. That's my friend. He mentions that. He um, is a out-of-state baseball player who was on scholarship at the University of Wisconsin. And Shannon was one of the first people he met that made him feel welcome, that made him feel um, like, West, you know, Milwaukee could be home for him, you know? And the police kind of waited on him to mention that he confessed his love for her, that he did have a romantic interest, and he didn't. So they had to be the people to bring it up. And he denied it at first. Very sketch. I don't really understand why he denied it. But initially, he denies it. But when they probe a little bit further, he says, yes, I did indeed have feelings for Shannon. But, you know, she didn't reciprocate those feelings. And although he was kind of dejected naturally that she rejected the fact that he had romantic feelings and she did not, but he was okay with that not happening, a romantic side of their friendship occurring because he felt like I still want her in my life. And so if we just have to be friends, I'm, I'm up for that. So the police, while they're interviewing him, they get the forensics back on Shannon's car. They don't find any blood in her car, but they do find fingerprints. And they're able to identify Shannon's fingerprints. And they're also able to identify um, Quentin Neal's fingerprints. But Trevor's fingerprints are all throughout the car. And they confront Trevor and they say, what's going on with that? Why are your fingerprints in her car? And he says, well, she picked me up for school. And she dropped me off from school all the time. So my fingerprints would be in the car. Like, it makes sense that my fingerprints would be there. 
And lastly, they asked him, okay, so where were you Friday, the morning of Friday? And he was miles away at a baseball game. And of course, they were able to substantiate that through the college. And they are back at square one. They have no person of interest to pursue. And they just don't really know where to go from here. The very next day after they interviewed Trevor, and some of these, uh, some of the parts of the investigation that I'm sharing with you guys, some did happen like right after, like a day after. And this is one of those moments where investigators interviewed Trevor, found out he was no longer a person of interest back at square one. And that's when the following day, Shannon's parents arrived back at the police, police department. And they tell investigators that they found Shannon's Apple watch. So, you know, Apple watches are a beautiful thing. Let's just, I mean, I'm just going to give a little appreciation, okay? Because they are able to keep up with your fitness. They're able to um, also carry your messages as well in addition to your phone. So if you're in a position where you need to reply back to somebody, but you can't grab your phone, you can always text on your iWatch. You can do so many things, send emails. I mean, access different apps work out. I mean, all the things, right? And so they saw her eye watch and they felt like, okay, this could possibly lead to something. So they tell investigators, they look through her Apple watch and they find a message to Quentin that was very odd because according to Quentin, he did not receive a reply from her on Friday. What they find out is that Shannon was supposed to go to his house. And he sends her a message Friday morning that says, are you still coming by the house? She responds to him and say, yes, I, I am coming. I will be there. If I wasn't going to come, I would have told you that. But I am definitely coming. So already, Quentin is now recanting, um, not recanting, but he's he's been proven to be a liar to investigators. They also tell investigators digging through that, that same text thread that they believed, according to the text messages, that there was evidence that there had been intimate partner abuse. There's a message inside of the text thread where Shannon is explaining that she just can't believe that he grabbed her face, held down her hands, wouldn't let her leave, and yelled at her. Of course, he sends a response back saying that he will never do it again. He didn't mean to do it. He's so sorry. Please forgive him, etc. Shannon simply replies back to that conversation and says, we might need a break from one another. So Quentin, at this point, is suspect number one, person of interest. The police are squared in on him. Before we get into what was Quentin's rebuttal, because naturally the investigators called him back in for an interview, what was Quentin's rebuttal to the lies that the police discovered? I want to do what we usually do at the start of the episode where I tell you guys a little bit more about the victim in the case. You guys already know, I've already said Shannon is gorgeous. And I don't think that's just my opinion. I think anybody who would see Shannon would agree that she's a very pretty girl. But outside of that, she was a gorgeous person on the inside. And that to me is what really matters, right? So people described her as considerate of others, helping anyone out, love to encourage people. And I like how her mother said in the interview that she was a count your blessings type of person, which in my opinion is a glass half full personality where they try to see the positive in situations at all times, at all times. They're not looking at the negative. They may see the negative, but they don't focus on the negative. And I loved that about her. Like I, when her mother was, recounting her personality and all the great traits about her, I connected to 
that the most? Because I think when you are naturally the count your blessings person in the scenario, you naturally bring up people's moods, their countenance. You encourage them because of your perspective, right? It's just so positive. And I just thought that was beautiful. So I felt instantly connected to her because of those particular characteristics. Now, we've already discussed that she's 21 years old. So in 2015, she attends the University of Wisconsin, which I already mentioned prior because that's where she met Trevor. She had goals of becoming a social worker and fighting against violence, domestic violence to be very specific. She wanted to start a home in her community that helped single mothers who were in abusive relationships get back on their feet, help them with their children, just aid in their new started life, right? And I mean, isn't it, it's only right for Shannon to become a social worker, right? Like it's, I have an aunt um, shout out to my aunt Linda, who is a social worker and her disposition and her character traits totally match up with a social worker. And that's what she is like. So it's, it's, I think sometimes those character traits, if you know them, it can really help you go into the field that you're meant to be in. Shannon not only went to school, she also had the opportunity to work with her dad at an organic food company. And her dad had been working there for 22 years. So there obviously was a rapport and a relationship um, with his job. And so he was able to bring on his daughter. In the spring of 2017, she has a chance encounter with Quentin Neal. Quentin was 26 years old and he entered into the organic food company spot to get an application to apply for a job. But instantly there was an attraction with them. It was a connection. It was a spark, what have you. And they had a lot of common interest. As I've already mentioned, she loved helping others. So did he. Um, when she talked about, you know, if she was ever to win the lottery about the house that she wanted to create in the in the community or surrounding domestic abuse and helping women and children, he agreed. He was like, oh, my God, that would be perfect. Like, yes. So as they're talking, they exchange numbers and, you know, what happens? They are dating. And they have been together for a year when they decide to adopt a dog. And they named the dog Akimo. And that was kind of like the start of their family. And I often know that people consider their pets part of their families. I totally get it. And so that was like their first baby, right? And she loved this dog. He was a rescue dog. He had been through some things. And just like her nature, she just wanted to save him and take care of him and give him a new home. They seemed happy, like minor issues here and there, but nothing significant. And of course, when you're 21 years old, right, you consider all the possibilities of how you're planning out your life because you're really starting to plan your life. But she soon found out that she was pregnant. She was four months pregnant. She didn't know how she would tell her parents, but she felt like, you know what, my relationship's good. Quentin is a good, good guy. I think he'd be a good parent. And you know, everything will work out. And so that's kind of where she was in her life when her in, where, when she went missing. That's what happened in her life. That's what was going on in her life before she went missing. Now that we have a good picture about who Shannon is and what was going on in her life, at the time of her disappearance, we can get back into the investigation. So police have just found out what was on her Apple Watch. And her parents also mentioned that they suspected pretty much the whole time that Quentin was behind it. 
They tell police that he was on parole for armed robbery and battery. So there was a history of violence in his background. He was emotionally unstable about the baby. Initially, her parents say that when they first found out they were pregnant, they came home. He told, you know, her parents that he was going to take care of her and the baby and everything seemed to be fine. I mean, they welcomed him with open arms. But his mother mentioned that the very next day he texted her and said, you know what? I don't think I'm ready for a baby. And I think that she should abort the baby. I don't think I'm ready. She needs to just have an abortion. We're not there in our relationship yet. So for her mother, that was just a red flag, you know, and totally suggest that he's unstable emotionally. Shannon's mother also tells police in recent weeks, she noticed that her daughter's face was swollen. So she goes and talks to her and just exhausted, Shannon tells her mother that Quentin came to the car and started punching her and she no longer wanted him in her life. However, she did continue to see him because we all know that in domestic abuse situations, they, they leave Like, I feel like they say it's up to like nine times before they really exit the relationship. They try to leave and then they go back. And that is due to the PTSD response um, that exists in a domestic abuse situation, right? So although she told her mother, hey, I'm done with him. I'm, I'm sick of this. She still went back, right? So the police are now left to address all this kind of new information that they have discovered through the Apple Watch, which her parents had no knowledge that her Apple Watch was even there, right? So I totally understand why they did not mention that to the police initially because they didn't have it available to mention it. But I just wish they would have said that about Quentin earlier, like, domestic abuse because I feel like then he would have been from the onset considered a person of interest um but because they didn't know that that there was domestic abuse there they couldn't name him a person of interest right so I I think it's very important not blaming her parents I think they did everything they felt like they could do in that moment but it's so important to mention the the nuances Right. The little things that maybe you don't want anybody to know. And perhaps they were hoping that Quentin wasn't behind it at all. But that is a very important detail that she was in a domestic abuse situation, relationship. And so because of that, he had motive. Also, because of the fact that he, you know, was emotionally unstable when it came to the baby and then flipped and said he didn't want the baby anymore. That's also motive. So I just... I think that's just a good lesson and trying to be aware enough to mention everything to the police when you initially speak to them. Quentin is brought back in to be interviewed, but he says that he can't because an urgent situation happened and he can't come back to the police station. So the police are able to acquire a warrant to go search his home. When police find him, you know, he says, yeah, sure. Search my stuff. Like, you're not going to find anything. I had nothing to do with this. And at, according to her parents, he said to them that Shannon would not be found. Period. It was at this time that they knew. Like, he knows something. He's able to definitively say that. He has something to do with it. Something in the water not clean. Right. So they go ahead and they go in his home and they start to search and upstairs they don't find anything. They use luminol. There's no blood found. But then there's a second part to the home. There's the basement. They go down the stairs and they don't really find anything there either visibly to the eye. But when they use the luminol downstairs in the basement, The whole room glowed like a disco ball. And it was then that they discovered that Shannon 
was probably dead because the amount of blood that was in that basement, it was just too much. It was in excess. A person couldn't continue to live without the blood that was in the basement, right? They go ahead, they take his phone and they discover that he was looking up, you know, lie, something that dissolved human flesh. He looked up and purchased a shovel. Um, they told him, they brought him back in after their warrant and they said, hey, listen, like we know about the abuse, all the evidence in your basement. Like, dude, you just need to come forward and say what happened. His demeanor totally changes, right? So he says, yep, I did kill her, but I killed her out of self-defense. And that to me was so like, what? And I know people do that, right? They say, oh, no, no, no. Like, it was just self-defense. I did kill her. But I failed to say even say that when you first interviewed me because I was scared, right? So the police, they're like, they tell, they tell him, listen, okay, just tell us what happened, even if it is self-defense. And he says that he can't that she did come over Friday and they were supposed to talk about her parents interfering in her life and interfering in their relationship an argument ensues and the issue and the argument turns physical he says that she goes to the kitchen and grabs the knife and of course they tussle with each other with the knife and he goes and grabs a gun he pointed the gun at her and squeezed the trigger but the safety was on. So then it was still a struggle with the gun, him and her back and forth. That's when he said he was able to get the safety off and he shot her in the head. She immediately falls down the stairs. But she's still alive and ready to fight. He then says that's when he grabs the knife and he stabs her in order to save his own life. Of course, he, you know, mentions that he panicked. And he realized that she was dead. And so he felt like his only option, instead of going to the police uh, who are supposed to handle that situation, he decides to handle it himself. So he packed up her body, stuffed her body in a suitcase and went to a, um, what is it? A storage unit. He led police there. And that's when they found the suitcase. There was no defensive wounds on him. It was just like, guy, like, give this up. Like this, your story is literally crumbling from, from the onset. But he kind of stuck beside his story, child. And it was absolutely a horrific discovery when they found her body because it was no way that he was going to be able to suppress the smell that a body gives off when it's decomposing. Somebody was going to find the storage unit manager was going to look into that. He was eventually, in my opinion, always going to get discovered, but they found her inside of the suitcase, stuffed inside of the suitcase. Um, her wrists and ankles were bound. Her head was covered with the bag. Her eyes were duct taped down. And her injuries proved that he lied. And they believed that it was premeditation. They believed that essentially he killed her because she wanted to have the child. As you can imagine, the news was absolutely earth shattering for her family. They did not know what to do and they couldn't believe that their daughter, who was so excited about life, so excited about her baby, and you know, trying to figure out how to get navigate her way out of this relationship, how it could end like this. And you may be wondering, 
why I entitled this episode, All Living Things Have the Right to Live. And I believe that that's obvious. And I believe that that statement is true through and through. But Shannon actually had this tatted on her arm because she believed it. She absolutely believed it. And on April 17th, 2018, he was charged, Quentin, with two counts of homicide and possession of a firearm um, because he was a felon. So he had no business having possession of that firearm, right? So essentially, police believed that an argument ensued, whether it was about her parents or not. They believed that ultimately it was about her pregnancy. It escalated into a fight, spilled into the basement, multiple gunshots. She wasn't just shot once. Then he went ahead and made sure that she was not going to live because he stabbed her several times. And ultimately, he tried to hide her body. The next three days, he pretended to be so concerned and tell her parents that he was just also concerned about Shannon and her baby. He wanted to get away with it. He had no guilty feelings associated with the terrible act that he committed. However, the prosecution, as they're gearing up for trial, they have a setback. The setback is they get a letter from an anonymous person that essentially says that there should be reasonable doubt. It should be known because one of his friends actually did it. And he's covering up for that particular friend. So the police then have to kind of open the investigation back up to figure out, like, is this is this real? Like, does he really, is he really covering for a friend? But they find out that a friend actually sends that in to the police department to throw off the investigation, like to throw it off or possibly get him released, which, okay, we're going to talk about that when we get to takeaway because I want to so bad right now, but I'm not. So on July 15, 2019, he decides not to go to trial and to avoid the death penalty. He pleads guilty. He is now serving life in prison with no possibility of parole. We have reached the takeaway segment of our episode. If you're new here on Murder in the Black, first of all, welcome. You have finally reached the end. But on our takeaway segment, that's when we, um, as hosts, and I say we because it's oftentimes me and my sister, but sometimes it's just us on here as co-hosts discussing solo what has happened but it's our opinion and what we personally took away from the case right what were the takeaways and not only are we trying to bring awareness to cases that are often not heard in mainstream media but we also are trying to possibly give our listeners knowledge about what they could do different if they find themselves in that situation or, um, you know, just different scenarios if they find themselves on the other side of looking for a missing person in their family or they suspect that somebody is being domestically abused. Just different things that you could possibly do to hopefully prevent um, crimes like the ones we mentioned here happening to you. So what is my takeaway? I feel like I have several. The first takeaway is reminding me of a situation where you guys know I do hair. And so I have clients, very loyal clients. Shout out to my clients. Y'all are the real MVPs. But I have clients that I, you know, I talk to. And we could talk about a ton of stuff, right? And with my super loyal clients, we just talk about whatever. And we were talking about domestic abuse. And how we felt, in our opinion, that it we didn't get the full spectrum of what domestic abuse could possibly look like, right? Um, An example of this is when I was younger, I would oftentimes watch the Lifetime Network, movie network specifically, all day, okay? That's when Lifetime was good. 
It was good. And if you're an OG TikToker, you know we really got our true crime love from Lifetime. Let's be clear. So, I would watch those movies. And being young and naive, I would just think, oh my gosh. Like, the domestic abuse and though oftentimes in those movies would be portrayed as he slaps you or he immediately hits you or you know he immediately is slapping you around the house throwing you fighting you you know he's he's immediately doing that and while that is all true because domestic abuse is a like it can start off on a spectrum right where it's you know things that are you know, pushing or shoving or restricting your hands. You can't leave. Restricting your movement. You know, I think it it can start off like that immediately. Subtle abuse and then go to the extreme. Or it can start off at extreme. But that's all I was seeing. That was the image that was being projected to me, right? And so being young and naive, not fully understanding why women went back to their abusers, and um, not understanding life, right? I was just like, oh my gosh, I don't even understand how they stay. And I don't understand how they, like, immediately, no, right? Immediately, somebody's hitting you in your face? Absolutely not, right? And I don't feel like enough emphasis, at least from my generation, we did not see enough of what domestic abuse can look like on the other end. How it often starts, right? Because being the narcissist that they are, they usually start off making you feel like you are the most beautiful person in the world, love bombing you, making you feel comfortable. And then they start the abuse off with soft things like, I don't want you going nowhere. Where are you going? Constantly checking in with them. them constantly trying to clock you. And when you're young, I feel like you're more, anybody is susceptible to domestic abuse. I want to be very clear. But I feel like when you're young, you're more naive. And so you're more susceptible to experiencing it. And oh, they know that, you know, and so they take full advantage of that and they manipulate that. So they'll start off with little soft things like, you know, possession, possessive, you know, you can't go anywhere. And when you're 18 and even 20, you think that's cute. That's not cute. That's toxic. And they're more than likely abusive. It just hasn't the they're abusive, first of all, emotionally. That's emotionally abusive. Secondly, the domestic abuse, the physical abuse, hasn't started yet. It's on the way. Because I think you can justify the possession, right? Like, girl, he just be tripping. Like, he don't want me go nowhere. And you low-key, like, yeah, he don't want me go nowhere. He want me be around him all the time right and then that can evolve into one day y'all get into an argument and like shannon he grabs your face begins to yell at you restricts your movements you can't go anywhere he wants you right there so he can yell and give you a good you know whatever whatever they feel like they call it right and i feel like that's still totally justifiable when you're young like you're 18, 20, you're like, okay, well, he didn't hit me. So I feel like it's it's all right. Like everybody has moments, right? Like he just he just grabbed me up. He didn't punch me. He didn't cause me any physical harm. And I think that's easy to justify that, right? And like I said, that's still abuse. And it's evolving and it's toxic. But I totally understand why Shannon went back, right? Knowing what I know now as a woman, 35-year-old woman, that you want to return back to that because of the trauma you're experiencing, right? But when you're young, and like myself, I can only speak to my personal experience. I don't feel like I got that information when I was younger. I don't. I don't think, uh, you know, I don't feel like my mom told me that. And I feel like my mom told me a lot. My mama really was a good parent. Like, you know how people say, oh, my mom was good. Now, my mom was fantastic. 
But I don't feel like she told, she like mentioned to me things about possessiveness and how that wasn't good. And things about like, he shouldn't grab you at all. Like even to restrain you. What? That's not normal. You know what? Do you understand? Like, do y'all understand? Do y'all feel me? You know, it's just, I don't feel like that was really taught with my generation. It was more like the more extreme version of what domestic abuse can look like. And that's absolutely not. But it can look like grooming. Grooming you, making you feel like, oh, this is small. Like, oh, we just got into an argument. It's an isolated situation. And the truth of the matter is, it's not. Because if a person could emotionally abuse you, they can physically abuse you. What's to say they won't? So my initial takeaway is this case brought on a lot of my own experience with domestic abuse. And while I don't feel like I was in a full-blown domestic abusive situation, I was in an abusive one. Before I got married, I met my, my husband. I was dating this guy. And I'm going to be fair. I'm not going to mention his name. But we'll call him John. Okay. John and I met in high school. And um, it was my senior year of high school that we met. And... Um, I've already shared with you guys that my aunt died when I was 17 years old. That was a very traumatic event for me. And his family was one of the many families that were responsible for, like, helping to take care of my cousins, my family who was immediately affected by my aunt's death, their mother. And he attended the same school as my cousin. My cousin knew him. So I kind of felt, like, assurance that he was a good guy. And on the outside, he was. You know, he would love by me. He made me feel really good and special and we went together and we all both went off to college and I just couldn't shake him. When I eventually returned back to Dallas, he was very possessive. He wanted me, if he called me or if he needed to know where I was or if I wasn't spending my time with him, he would lose it. Like we would be arguing. It would be absolutely terrible, Right. And I even remember a situation where I was scheduled to go on a trip with my mom to a graduation. And he was just like, I don't want you to go. Like, just tell her no. Just tell her no. And to my detriment and to my embarrassment today, I actually went. I I mean, I actually did not go. And I made up some lie to my mom. And my mom was pissed. But he wanted me to be with him. And I was just like, oh my God, I gotta be with him. And I thought jealousy was cute. And I thought the possessiveness was cute. I didn't see it as necessarily toxic because I was like 20 something years old. And I just felt like, oh, this is just what, you know, happens. This is a relationship, right? And it truly wasn't. It was toxic. That emotional abuse, Tied into manipulation. Manipulation went into um, him pushing me. Went into him dragging me on the floor. Trying to prevent me to not leave. And while he never got around to punching me. I knew that that's where that was going. It was going towards that. It was progressive. It didn't happen immediately. Maybe not even the first year did that happen, but it went on. It went on. And I know that my only saving grace was my mother and my father who prayed for me. You know, he disconnected me from my family. He isolated me. I didn't have a relationship with my mother. And if you know anything about me, child, I love my mama. That is my soulmate. That's my ace, Bunkun. Something go on with me, my mama know. You know what I'm saying? And she she understands my demeanor. I mean, y'all. Seriously. And I wasn't even talking to my mom. Right? I think about those moments. And the reason why I'm being so transparent with you guys is I think we need to start this conversation. Because domestic abuse can look like all different things. Emotional abuse can look like different things. And so this for me definitely kind of like 
made me have a flashback into time. And if it wasn't for the prayer of my parents, for the prayer of my grandparents, great-grandparents, I don't know that I would have immediately got out of that relationship or that I would not have been Shannon too, right? Because that was a possibility. I could have been her too. I could have been her too. So that is the takeaway that I got, that we have to um, protect our daughters by giving them information, right? We have to protect them by showing them the early signs of abuse and what it can look like and the extreme side, the extreme side, I'm sorry, of what abuse looks like. We have to show them all of it. We have to equip them with the education in order for them to believe people when they show themselves the first time, right? That is my takeaway. I already, you know, I feel like I already preach to y'all and tell y'all all the time. Like, just know that, you know, your different city has different statutes as it relates to missing people. And I feel like that goes without being said. I say that here all the time on Murder in the Black. But that is another takeaway. That's an addition too, right? So... In conclusion, guys, I know I kind of went down like the rabbit hole of Steph's 20-year-old life, but I know that there are women out there who can relate to my story. And while mine didn't evolve into extreme domestic abuse, it was a form of it. It was a form of it, dude. And so I just want to present that in hopes that I'm helping somebody. In hopes that you hear these words and you you say, you know what, that's me. Or I'm experiencing that now. Yeah, jealousy. I thought it was cute at first, but is it really cute? Hmm. No. I just heard how Steph went through that situation, right? So I want to provide a resource that if you listen to this podcast and you said, oh my God, that's me. Regardless of what age you are, because it's not a perspective of persons. It's not a perspective of age. It happens to everyone. It can happen to anyone, I should say. So if you find yourself in that situation, there's help. There's help. And if you haven't heard it today, I love you and there is somebody in your life that absolutely loves you. And they don't want nothing from you. They just love you for who you are, for your very existence. I didn't know this episode was going to evolve into this, but listen, it must be a reason. It must be a reason why I did. So I'm going to take the initiation to just say, That I love you and I simply don't want anything from you. Okay? And there's help. There's help. And there is some type of comfort in knowing that others have experienced what you experienced too. I think it's very easy to get on these podcasts and tell you tell people you should you should just believe people when you when they show you them uh, show you themselves and to mitigate situations and to act like, oh, they should have just known better. No, dude. Sometimes you absolutely don't know better because you didn't have the education to know better, right? So, you know, the saying is, if I knew better, I would do better. But ignorance is absolute bliss sometimes. And I want to be transparent enough to let you guys know, hey, listen, I experienced it. So the help that is available is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Their number is 1-800-799-7233. Again, that is 1-800-799-7233. You can also text them, you know, because sometimes we don't want to talk on the phone. Child, that's me, okay? I know that's some of y'all, that's me. So you can also text START to 88788. They have a official website that you can go to. You can actually chat 
with someone on their website. So there's tons of resources available for you to get the help you need. And abuse is abuse. It doesn't matter if it's soft. It doesn't matter if it's not he punched me in my face, but he dragged me on the floor. That's abuse. You don't do that. I don't care if you're right at the stage of possessiveness. It's toxic. It's absolutely toxic. I'm going to leave you guys with a saying that I heard. And I don't know. I can't remember if it's a meme that I read or if it was a quote by somebody that I read. But this is what it said. And I think oftentimes as women, but even men too, because I'm not trying to leave y'all this conversation. Domestic abuse definitely exists between a woman and a man where the woman is the aggressor. Hello? I said that on our episode already. Okay? And so somebody said to me, or I heard, that how long would it tell... I mean, how long would you wait if I asked you everything you love to answer yourself? Just let that sit. I'm going to say it again because I really didn't say it like with good disposition at first. How long would it take for you to say that you loved yourself if I asked you all the things that you loved? And you can't help yourself. What they say on the airplane? Put on your own mask first before helping other people. Because if you don't, you're going to die. You can't help nobody else. You have to love yourself enough to get the help that you may need. I hope this episode means something to you guys. I hope you got something from it. And if it was just like, girl, too much, I'm sorry. But I felt it on my heart to share that. So until next time, friends, our Thursday episode will be up. Y'all stay thankful. This is Murder in the Black.